We'll be looking this morning at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I think everyone in this room, at least most everyone in this room, has asked the all-too-familiar question, why, at some time or another. Why is sometimes, you know, merely a simple question. But sometimes it's much more than that. Sometimes that simple three-letter word, W-H-Y, not that you can't spell, but sometimes that simple three-letter word is often used by us as one of those proverbial four-letter words in the midst of our emotions and the way in which we often demand with that question, why? It is a question that tends to consume us in the midst of our present tragedies, when we're in the middle of the places we would never choose to be. And if you think about it, that question, why, in its most expressive sense, is a relevant question expressed towards God in the midst of injustice. Would you agree? It's relevant. Why is this happening to me, God? Why would you allow an innocent child to die? Why am I struggling so hard to make ends meet when, I, when I've worked so hard? Why doesn't my wife love me anymore? Why do so many innocent people suffer and die in the midst of war-torn countries around this world? Who did nothing to deserve it. Why do so many people go without the basic necessities of life when others have so much beyond what they need? The questions go on and on. And you could contextualize those questions maybe even now in the midst of your present or recent struggles. I mean, if God is in fact all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving then why do these kinds of things happen around us, to us, to those we love? Why do sinful people seem to prosper while those who seek to live right or good, at least from our perspective, seem to suffer? Well, this, this is the question, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the question that arises at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, to which the psalmist then seeks to provide us with an answer. Read with me as we read both Psalms 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Our father, this morning, as we look to this word, I pray that you will open our eyes that we might see in the midst of of this text, your beauty. And Father, speak to our hearts today through the hearing of your word in a way that that would be necessary for us to to repent of our sin and to be compelled to live passionately in pursuit of Christ. Our needs here this morning vary greatly. Very likely from someone who may be here this morning who has yet to repent and believe the gospel and is yet lost in their sins to to one who is mature in their faith and passionately pursuing Christ and everything in between. Father, we know by the power of your spirit that that while I myself am inadequate to address every place in which we find ourselves this morning, you, you can. And so God, speak to us this morning. Bring your word alive in our hearts that we might be changed by it. I pray you would allow us the faith to place ourselves under the word in these moments. That we might be compelled to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Psalms is sometimes referred to by those who want to be more technical as the Psalter. is a well-loved book. By many, often even by those whom we may know that that are not who they do not fully affirm the gospel as we do. But yet they they still would would consider the Psalms a, a great book. They find comfort in it. They find joy in it at times. It's one of one of the or at least one of the best known passages in all scripture is located in the book of Psalms. And I if I polled you, I'm, I, I don't doubt that the majority of us could speak it out right now. It's Psalm 23. Probably one of the the best known and best loved passages in all of scripture. And again, I remind you, loved by those who, like us, affirm fully the gospel of Jesus Christ. And loved by those who don't. The Psalms are filled throughout with an immense variety of emotion and expression. As you read it, you you can pick up on the differing expressions and emotions that... That it's filled with. From victory to defeat. From joy to sorrow. From confidence to fear. And we could go on and on with a variety of the emotions that we as humans often experience in the ups and downs of our lives. But too often the Psalms are read as nothing more than a devotional compilation of poetry that that seeks to convey a particular emotion. And you, you know what I'm saying. We often go to the Psalms devotionally, not that that's wrong, but sometimes there's nothing more than just that to, to maybe uh, get a little pick-me-up along the way. The New Testament, however, 
reveals that the Psalter, or this book of Psalms, is, is much more than the musings of, the, of those who contemplated the Lord in the midst of their victories and their defeats, in the midst of their joys and their sorrows. The book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. And almost every occurrence, if not every occurrence, of the quotes or allusions to this particular book are recorded as prophecy. That's the way the New Testament writers read the book of Psalms. They, they, they quoted it not as, as devotional reading, but as prophecy, and most often as prophecy concerning, in particular, the person of Jesus Christ. So if the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we firmly hold to, if they read the book of Psalms as prophecy concerning the Messiah, then we too should consider how it is that we come to approach this particular book. There are those, including myself, who hold to view that not only are the the Psalms themselves individually particularly inspired scripture, but that also the process of collecting and organizing these Psalms into a singular book within the text of scripture is inspired as well. In other words, the book of Psalms is an inspired collection of songs that, that seek to unveil God's promised Messiah. And they're not merely devotional, emotional readings. As the introduction to this entire book of Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 orient you and I as the readers to to how we are to read not only these that we are focusing on today, but all the Psalms that follow. It, it gives us a, a focus so that when we enter into this book, we, we, we have a particular sense of lenses of which we are looking at the text with. And it will orient us, as you will see, with what's been called a, a Christological perspective. That is, as we read these Psalms, we are not looking for the emotion of necessarily the writer, whether it be David or Asaph or, or someone else, but we are looking for what the text reveals about the coming Messiah and for our sakes, the one who has already come, who is coming again. In other words, as the introduction to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 provide us with the way we should understand the Psalms. Now, while the Psalms, and and hear this, while the Psalms can be read and understood in isolation, for instance, Psalm 23, many of them require a broader scope of context than just that particular individual Psalm in order to gain in full the intended meaning of the text. Such is the case for Psalm 1 and 2. Another good example I've already mentioned of, of this reality is Psalm 23. You see, Psalm 23, in, in, on an individual basis, is a great psalm of, of encouragement. Many people have, have gained great uh, uh, encouragement through the midst of especially grief on its own. But if you find or you read that particular psalm in the context with the preceding and the subsequent psalm, 22 and 24, you find it is a story that reveals uh, the cross of Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension on high before his father. And so, I would argue that we must be careful as we approach the book of Psalms and and read them merely as isolated musings or emotional expressions of God followers who are, are now dead. And with this in mind, the question of Psalm 2 verse 1 is raised in response to the declaration 
of Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. And the blessings promised to those who take refuge in him in Psalm 2, verse 12, point back to the blessings of the man of Psalm 1. So I want us to consider this morning Psalm 1 and 2 in light of their role as the introduction to the book of Psalms, as we introduce this short series that we are engaging on, that we're calling Refuge in Him. But I I want us to consider these particular Psalms as the introduction to this divinely inspired collection under five particular headings. First, the question of injustice, which we have already raised. Second, the ideal man. Thirdly, a sovereign response. Fourth, a gracious warning. And lastly, a gracious promise. First, the question of injustice. And we're going to begin right in the middle. And then we're going to kind of go back. Just I think this is probably the best way for me to help you see uh, this text. Psalm 2 begins with an emotionally charged question. And, and, and if you don't read it with great emotion, then you're not reading it rightly. Because he says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Well, this question is raised in light of the promise that was just recorded in Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. And in light of that, this question, why, is what's going on in this world? Why is it going on? It's a relevant question to God. If indeed the wicked will not stand, and God knows the way of the righteous, then why does much of what we experience here and now seem quite the opposite? Why is it that we look out in our world and we see so many people, especially so many good people seeking to do right, who are suffering in the midst of the things that you're trying to do good, while so many people who could care less about God and His ways seem to be climbing the ladder? One of the reasons that we, as a people, love a good hero story or a story of the underdog prevailing is because they are the exception in our experience. We don't have to look very far in order to find examples of how injustice seems to win out. I could probably, I'm not, I could probably take testimony right here of how things are not fair in your life. And it doesn't, it doesn't take very long for our children to learn that phrase, right? It's not fair. Yeah. And we correct them, right? I mean, it goes on my house and we're like, you don't say that, you know. But you know what? It's not. It's not. There's a lot in our lives that's not fair. So how do we respond to our children? Get used to it. Why? Because life isn't fair. Innocent people face tragedy while bad people, at least, again, I'm using that term bad people from our perspective, seem to prosper. Chaos prevails more than we would like to admit in our own lives. We come together like this and, and you know, and when we come together, we, we have no clue sometimes about the chaos in one another's lives because we put on this face, Right? We want to pretend like everything's okay. We say, how are you? Fine. We smile. Lenny came up to me this morning and said, how are you? I said, brother, do you really want to know? Now, things aren't bad, but nevertheless, you know, I said to him, I said, but when people say, how are you? They don't really want to know how you're doing. At least that's the way it really seems sometimes, right? So we just, we put on this face. We, we go about our, our days. We don't, we don't really go, well, let me, where do you want me to begin? How am I doing? Well, how much time do you have? 
The psalmist who, who writes these psalms was very aware of the injustice in this life. And those who had the power to do right and to provide justice for the masses were instead seeking to live by their own rules. The psalmist expresses this in, in, in Psalm 2 by, by quoting these people as saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These were the kings, the rulers, those who, who had the ability in the life or in the scope of this author to, to do something, to do something good, to make a difference. And they were the very ones going, let us cast it off. And it's just another way of them saying, we're not going to live by God's standards, but instead we're going to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. In many ways, that attitude of which the, the psalmist records, it was the sin of Adam and Eve in the beginning, was it not? They too sought to make their own rules instead of living under the sovereign rule of their creator who promised to take care of them, who promised to provide everything they needed, but instead, what did they do? They said, in one way or another, we don't always know how to portray it, but in one way or another, they said, thank you, but no thank you. We'll, we'll do it for ourselves. We'll go our way. We... We'll be the rule makers. And, and this is what's going on even in the midst of this, this injustice. This psalmist is recording uh, the kings of the earth and the rulers. They, they're plotting together against the Lord and against his Lord. And, and they're saying, let us cast aside their cords, their boundaries, God's way. And since that time, since the beginning of Adam and Eve's first sin, this attitude has only grown more deeply rooted into the heart of man. We see this taking place in our own day in, in many ways, but at least in, in, in this way, that those whom, to whom we have given the power to govern the affairs of our lives seem to push further and further away from any semblance of godliness. Now, I'm not picking on particular individuals, but as a general scope, it seems that those whom we entrust to govern our lives for the good of the people and for God's glory seem to push further and further, casting aside the cords and the bonds and wanting to make their own rules, redefine their own rules. To the psalmist and often to us, it seems as though these people are succeeding in their endeavors to burst apart the bonds of God's lordship over his creation. As we look out in the world around us, it seems, it appears often that we are losing the fight. But the truth conveyed in these first two psalms doesn't stop with this declaration, with this revelation of the injustice of this world. You see, because the, this entire book, the book of Psalms, opens with a declaration concerning the blessed man. And as we read that, and we think upon that, this ideal man is said to be successful in all he does. This, this includes success over these, these wicked people that have been raised and the question has been raised about in Psalm 2. He's successful over these wicked people who would seek to undo all that God has purposed and, and seek to live outside the sovereign rule of God. So we consider this ideal man of Psalm 1. The psalmist suggests that there is a way in this life to experience real success. He suggests that by presenting this, this picture of the blessed man to us in Psalms. I mean, real success. Now, 
I'll say right here, I think it's come up last week. This is not a presentation of prosperity gospel, I assure you. But whatever the biblical success is, this, the psalmist seems to suggest that there is a way in this life to experience real biblical success as he presents this picture of the blessed man. This ideal, ideal man is, is faithful in his walk and, and in his dedication to, to God's word, it tells us. The psalmist describes this character, uh, this, this ideal man, as one who keeps himself from every appearance of evil. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And this is just a mere, or merely a, a threefold way of saying ultimately the same thing. It's, it's a way of describing one who, who lives a life above reproach and, and lives a life of faithfulness. Constantly and consistently to his God. Not only does this ideal man live faithful in his lifestyle, but he does so because of his dedication to God and his word. It tells us that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that this ideal man would meditate on God's law day and night. Now, that phrase, day and night, doesn't merely suggest that this this character this person reads God's word often but that he does so saturating every moment of his life with the word of God day and night is simply another way of saying all the time it doesn't mean some of the day and some of the night but day and night and the result of this ideal man's dedication the text in Psalm 1 tells us is that he stands firm through the ups and downs of the chaotic life in this world, like a tree planted by streams of water. And he, he bears, his life bears consistent fruit without fail. He bears, he yields its fruit in his season. Most notably, concerning this blessed man, is, the ideal, is that this ideal man is successful or prosperous in all that he does. Now, you can look with me if you don't, if you don't want to take me for you at my word, but it says that in all that he does, he prospers. Now, I don't want you to miss that little simple word because it is significant here. In all that he does. Not just successful some of the time or, or even most of the time, but in all that he does, this person is prosperous. He's successful. All that we could be, this Ideal person, right? That we could live up to that and be characterized by that. Now, while there is much encouragement for us to model our lives after this description of the the, the blessed man or the ideal man, uh, we don't want to miss the ultimate point that rests in this text. You see, the final verse of Psalm 1, the final verses of Psalm 1, declare that, that God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked perish. God, God knows the way of the righteous, but... The way of the wicked will perish. Now this sounds great, doesn't it? Initially, as long as you're in the first category, right? God knows the way of the righteous, which is, there's much more to that concept of knowing. I mean, it's, it's, it's an intimate relationship. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And again, that's great news, as long as you are in that first category. But how can you be sure that you are? I mean... If we take just this text that's before us this morning, 
If the description of the ideal man is the criteria by which we qualify for the category of righteous, then we should probably be a little concerned, shouldn't we? How many of us live consistently by by the description of verse 1? Can we say that we never walk in the counsel of the wicked? Can we say that we never stand in the way of sinners or that we never sit in the seat of scoffers? I'll be the first to admit, no, I can't. How many of us can say that that we meditate faithfully in God's word day and night? We talk about it, right? I I, I don't read God's word enough. And we know that that's a reality for all of us because we know none of us are so saturated with the word of God that it consumes all of us all the time. Well, if that doesn't work for you, I guess maybe we could determine our status by the results that we experience, as this person does. How many of us find ourselves standing firm, so firm that we never waver in the ups and downs of life? That we're the tree planted by streams of water and and we're firm. We're not swayed. Or finally, how many of us can say that we're prosperous in everything that we do? If you can, then we need to talk. If we utilize these characteristics, I would say that that all of us, every person, would fail miserably. So if we simply consider the text of this particular psalm and take it for what it says, we might find ourselves wondering if we could reasonably believe that we, of all people, would be among the righteous. And to add injury to insult, Paul has to chime in on this issue. Paul, he messes up a few things from time to time. In Romans 3, when he quotes Psalm 14 saying, There are none good, no, not one. There are none righteous. So then, what are we to make of such reality? What are we supposed to do? Well, you know, our first response typically is, Well, that must not be what it means then, right? Because it's impossible that that none of us are really righteous, that none of us will stand, you know, in that category of righteous, but... But now again, this comes to the issue. Who gets the upper hand, us or the word? Let the word speak. The righteous will stand, but yet there are unrighteous. This is the very issue in the midst of this chaotic, sin-infected world that Psalm 2 seeks to respond to. Under divine inspiration, the psalmist provides us with a sovereign response to this dilemma. So why then? So why does justice continue in, injustice continue in this life? Why is that the way life goes? Why are the wicked allowed by God to have their way and subvert, subvert the very ways that he has declared? Why are the wicked allowed to plot and plan against the Lord and against his anointed? The psalmist reveals to us God's response to these scoffers. These kings and these rulers of Psalm 2 are the very scoffers and sinners of Psalm 1. And this is the response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God's not concerned in the least that there are those who seem to succeed in this life. While living in rebellion to his ways. God is not fretting going, what am I going to do? Can you see what's going on down there? I continuously try to show them grace and and favor and they keep doing things their own way over and over again. What are we going to do? It's all falling apart. No. The Bible says that as 
There are those on this earth in the psalmist day and even to this day who, who in their, their, their rebellion towards God continue to prosper and seem to have things go their way. God sits in the heavens and he laughs. This isn't a, a cold sort of laugh, I don't believe. It's a confident laugh. It's a laugh, it just kind of a snicker that he's amazed that we would even for a second think that we had control. God has decreed the end from the beginning. And he will accomplish his perfect plan for the ages. The Bible is very clear about that. So, he remains unmoved by the seeming momentary injustice because everything will face ultimate justice before the sovereign king of the universe. This certain outcome, God declares in this psalm, uh, in Psalm 2, will have its fulfillment in the king that God has established. The psalmist writes in verse 6 of, chapter, of, of Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, all the kings of the earth that, that are mentioned in the psalm, the kings and the rulers, they may enjoy a temporary and limited reign of power and influence in this life. But this king, the one that the psalmist writes of in Psalm 2, this king is God's king. And that makes him the king of all kings. Not only does this king enjoy the exalted status, according to this psalmist, of God's king, but he also enjoys the status of son of God. God writes, or the psalmist writes, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I would declare the decree. This is God saying, let me, let me unveil this decree for you. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this is not, this is no ordinary king. But this is a king who enjoys a unique relationship with, with the creator himself. The, the sovereign himself. And this king would not merely rule a particular kingdom. As all the kings that have existed up to this very day. But the psalmist tells us that he will be granted the nations. As his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. <laughs> Not very limited, is he? Like all the other kings. When the psalmist recorded these words, how and when this declaration would come to be a reality was, was yet a mystery. God's people, God's people were continually, since the beginning, continually looking for, for such a leader. This, this kind of leader. They longed for this kind of leader. One, one who would lead them as, as Moses once did. Or provide victory over the enemy as Joshua once did as they entered into the promised land. Or, or provide them with a life of peace and prosperity even, even as David once did. This was the continual search. This was what they were looking for. Moses declared in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he declared that one day God's people would in fact have a king. And, and when he declared that, he goes on to say, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levit Levitical priest. And, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may, might not turn Aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. And after Moses, Joshua came on the scene, 
And he became Moses' replacement. He's, he's portrayed in the Bible as this military conqueror, this leader. And when he came on the scene and was preparing for God's people to, to take hold of God's promise, these words were declared to him by God. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, Joshua was indeed a successful, uh, was successful in much. The Bible uh, bears that out for us. He was successful in much and he provided great leadership for God's people, but, but he didn't live up to, to this reality perfectly. He fell short of what we read in Psalm 1. What was declared to him as possible in Joshua 1.8 is presented in Psalm 1 as being done perfectly by this ideal man. What was commanded to be done by Israel's king according to Moses in Deuteronomy 17 was followed to some extent by a few kings, but not perfectly, not nearly perfectly, and not by very many. God's king of Psalm 2, that God sets on his holy hill, would fulfill both the words written by Moses and declared to Joshua perfectly. And through this king, through this particular king that is unveiled for us in Psalm 2, God's people would one day see the justice declared in Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. This king, who enjoys the status of son, The psalmist tells us in 2 verse 9, will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And because of the promise of this king, the psalmist provides a gracious warning for those who stand in rebellion to God. It's a good thing I'm not God. I wouldn't even bother with the gracious warning. I would just wipe them out, wouldn't you? In light of God's coming king, Verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 2 provide an exhortation to the kings and the rulers who had set themselves above God and were counseling together against the Lord and his anointed. Again, man, I I just draw the line right there and say, dude, you messed up. You're, You're done for. But God doesn't. Even through his revealed word, we find this exhortation of of wisdom and of warning. All who are opposed to the sovereign rule of God are wise to consider this king and his authority. So they are warned, these these kings and rulers, they're warned of the judgment that will befall them if they persist in their ways. And might I add that we too are warned of the judgment that would befall us if we persist in similar ways. This warning exhorts us all to serve the Lord and rejoice with trembling. Just as God's justice will be dealt out through this promised king, who is declared to be the begotten Son of God, serving the Lord is fulfilled through submission to the Son. So the psalmist declares, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. This is simply another way of the psalmist saying to us in our terms, submit yourself to him, bow before him, worship this one. Those who would desire to serve God must do So by submitting themselves to the Son of God, this king set on Zion's holy hill. Now, while the audience to whom these psalms were first written, while they didn't have a clear picture, they were looking forward, they didn't have a clear picture of this reality, we do, do we not? 
As we look backwards on, uh, on what's been revealed, we can clearly recognize the reality of this king that he's talking about in Psalm 2, who is the son in the person of Jesus Christ. God become man, taking on human flesh, living this life on our behalf. And we find that at the end of the Gospels, Jesus himself declares that all authority has been given to me. And God's judgment has been handed over to this son, this, this king, the one whom we call Jesus. He is the judge, and therefore one day all of humanity, including you and me, will stand before Christ as judge. And it is then that the reality of Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6, will clearly come to pass. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Yet the rest of Scripture makes it clear that doing acts of service, as the psalm declares, serve the Lord. Doing acts of service for God doesn't make one righteous. We can't do certain things and become righteous. So then, if there are none righteous... How does the revelation of this king, who is the son of God, do us any good? I mean, we've already established that God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the unrighteous, will perish. So how is this help for one like me, or like you, perhaps? And while it is certain that the wicked will perish, and that all things will be made right, how does one guarantee that that we do not come up short and find ourselves in that wrong category. Psalm 2 closes with the gracious promise concerning the dilemma of the ages. How do sinful, unrighteous people gain a favorable standing before a righteous king? In the final statement of Psalm 2, we come full circle with the blessed man of Psalm 1. It is clear that the righteous will stand and the unrighteous will perish. We've got that pretty much. It it is clear throughout Scripture that all humanity is born in rebellion to God and and persist in that state due to our sinful nature and therefore are ourselves unrighteous. Scripture is also clear that there is nothing that we can do, nothing we can say in order to make up for our own unrighteousness and therefore justly deserve to be condemned as the wicked sinners, I know that sounds harsh, but as the wicked sinners that we are. The blessed man of Psalm 1, however, will find himself among the righteous. If only. If only we could live up to that description. Maybe we should decide today that we're going to be defined by that without fail. But even if we could from this day forward, how would we begin to make up for the many years that we've already lived in rebellion to God as unrighteous? It is an impossible dilemma. And the description of the blessed man in Psalm 1 is not merely a moral pep rally recorded in God's word in order to to get us to somehow do better. read Read the Bible more. While you should, it's not what someone's merely that pep rally to get you pumped up. So you go out here going, I'm going to read God's word more. And you do that for a day or two or a week or a month. And then you find yourself falling again. That's not what God intends us to find in this psalm. A moral do better story. It is the description rather of the man who would live a completely righteous life. 
His entire life would would be characterized as the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sin or sit in the seat of scoffers. He would perfectly and continuously meditate in God's word day and night, delighting in the word. His life would be marked out by living in accordance to God's law perfectly. He would be like a tree bearing fruit in its season and he would truly be successful in all that he does. This is good news. He would be successful in everything. And there is but one who is truly righteous. His name is Jesus. He lived a perfectly sinless life, fulfilling God's law to every point. Something no mere human being is capable of doing in this life. And with his perfect righteousness... He gave his life on behalf of unrighteous sinners like us, making his perfect righteousness available to you, to me. And it is for this reason that the psalmist declares in in Psalm 2, verse 12, at the very end, Blessed are all who take refuge in him, not those who somehow gain the status of righteous But blessed are all who take refuge in him, who this king set on Zion's hill, who is God's response to the world of injustice, of the people's plotting in vain and the nation's raging. It is the hymn of Psalm 1, the blessed man who perfectly lives in light of God's truth. Our hope is not in our ability to live up to the character of Psalm 1. We will all fail miserably, but Jesus lived that life for us. Our only hope is taking refuge in Him. He offers His righteousness freely to to all who will take refuge in Him. And all who do so will find themselves declared righteous and stand in the day of judgment. All who refuse to find themselves justly, or all who refuse to, to, to take refuge in Him, find themselves justly condemned under the righteous wrath of God. So it isn't an issue of whether or not you're doing good enough to be in that category of righteous, but because we can't, you know it. You've strived for it, but you failed, and you strived, and you failed, and you strived, and you failed, but yet you keep on striving, and it's just not possible. Martin Luther captured some of the reality of, of, of Psalm 1 and 2 in, in the hymn that's familiar to many of you, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I want to read the first two verses of that hymn. I want you to take special note of verse 2. He says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That's not a very uplifting verse, by the way, if you didn't catch that. But listen to verse 2. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. It's not getting good yet. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? It's a good question. Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. He must win the battle, and, and guess what? I can add to that probably in better language for today. He has won the battle. So while we should be compelled when we read such a psalm as 1 and 2, we should be compelled to live a life characterized by this blessed man of Psalm 1. Yes, 
But we must recognize that in all our attempts to do so, we will ultimately end in failure. Again and again and again. And in the midst of the chaos of of this sinful world, full of injustice and filled with a, a culture that seeks to subvert the ways of God, all humanity find themselves in an impossible dilemma. How will sinful man become righteous? But what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. And in spite of what what may seem to be reality in the here and now, as we look out across this world, justice will be meted out in the end and all will be made right. The question that remains is in which group will we find ourselves? Will you be among the righteous whose ways God knows or among the wicked who will perish? And if you're depending upon your own righteousness, you will face a rude awakening when you stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on that great day. God in his mercy and grace has provided a way for unrighteous sinners to stand among the righteous. He has given us the perfect king, his own son. And all who would desire to gain the status of righteous before a righteous God must do so on the basis of this ideal king who is the fulfillment of the blessed man of Psalm 1. On the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, sinners like you and me can be declared righteous. And so comes to pass the declaration of the psalmist. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Father, we love you. And it is our prayer this morning that we would find our refuge in none other than Jesus Christ. The Lord, seeking that refuge or desiring that refuge is, is not a category we recognize merely for those who have yet to experience salvation. But it's a category that, that we all should desire as believers Even to this day, we continually seek refuge in you, which is the evidence of the fact that we have found refuge in you. But God, I especially pray this morning for those who have yet to find that refuge. Wherever they may be in life, whether things are going great, whether they are the the ones categorized as unrighteous who who are are prospering right now. Therefore, they, they don't see much need for a savior because things are going well or whether they are those who are struggling and seeking to to do things on their own, trying to attain their own righteousness before you, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would take this word and you would press it into their hearts and that they would run to the only refuge in which we can find true salvation in you, our God and our King. And Father, for those of us who have found that that refuge, I pray that we will be reminded this morning of how wonderfully great you are in unveiling even so many years ago through the pages of the scripture written in Psalms of this, this great truth of this great king. Thank you for doing that for us so that we could one day hear the gospel message and that our eyes would be enlightened and open that we might see the glories of the gospel. I pray we would celebrate that this morning and that we would continually seek our refuge in you. And I pray, Lord, that that would be evidence, not by our trying to attain some, some self-righteousness, but by our desire to, to be compelled to, be, to model our lives after the blessed man of Psalm 1, that we would seek to, to be defined and characterized by such scripture. So, Father, I pray that you would have your way in the hearts of your people this morning and do what it is, what it is that you alone can do. Work in the hearts of your people and may we respond in a way that would evidence our desire to see you high and lifted up 
May you be glorified in us today. In Jesus' name we pray.